Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole, and welcome to the Wild for Change podcast. On today's podcast, we're speaking with John Jerko II, creative director of Global Conservation Corps and leading producer and director of the film Rhino Man. Global Conservation Corps is a nonprofit organization that is bridging the gap between communities and wildlife. The film Rhino Man was the first project of GCC and was created to support the rangers protecting the rhino and to share their stories. Rangers are on the front line, the boots on the ground, protecting our diminishing population of rhino that deserve to be here but are being poached for their horn. These rangers put their lives on the line to protect the rhino. This is what makes a ranger so special and formidable. This is truly where passion meets purpose. Thank you, John, for joining us today to talk about the film Rhino Man. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah, I'm really excited to be on here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our talk today. I wanted to begin with how did your love for filmmaking begin? Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know if I, there's a clear path, but I, I definitely watched a ton of films as a kid. Uh, I grew up in the VHS era. So I remember we always went to the, the, the rental store and I would kind of get everything on the cartoon aisle when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, uh, strangely enough, I'm not like a, a huge horror film fan, but, or like buff, but I was kind of attracted to like horror films and sci-fi movies <laughs> way back in the day. So I feel like I watched all of that, even though like I wasn't allowed to watch MTV, but somehow I got away with some of these scary <laughs> movies that kept me up at night. Um, and then over the years, you know, I would make a lot of comedy sketches with friends and we started videotaping some of those and we'd show it with the, to the family at the holidays just for laughs. And I think it was maybe my second or third year of university. I took a screenwriting class as part of a creative writing minor and for some reason, that's kind of when it clicked because I, I was going to school and really didn't know what what I wanted to do. I was kind of playing guitar and thinking I was going to be a rock star and then taking classes, trying to <laughs> figure out what to do to be serious with life. And <laughs> when I took that class, it just kind of clicked in my mind that, oh, you can actually be a filmmaker as a career. And, you know, I loved I was studying psychology a bit and I got into philosophy and then the writing side and the video and filmmaking side. And it all just kind of came together in my mind. It's like, oh, I can kind of do and study a little bit of all of this to incorporate it into filmmaking. And so I changed majors, changed schools, and ended up graduating from Bowling Green State with a film production degree and a philosophy double major because I just fell in love with philosophy as well. Wow, how interesting. It went from a minor in filmmaking to now we're talking about this film that you produced. Yeah, yeah. It's been quite a journey. And I mean, it. I went to LA for a while, did some indie filmmaking out there, mostly in the camera departments, and then eventually found my way to Atlanta, Georgia when I got connected to this project. Wow. So can you tell us a little bit um, background of how you met Matt Lindenberg, the, the founder of Global Conservation Corps, and how it took you to create this film? Yeah. So... I I took a break from LA after being there a couple of years, just it was financially a little rough. And then I found myself getting stuck in this camera department area, which I love the, the, the camera side of things and thinking about the visuals of the film. But I was afraid that, you know, working 16 hour days, six, seven days a week, sometimes trying to make it on these indie films that I wasn't going to be able to focus on the storytelling side. So that's kind of why I ended up leaving uh, Atlanta or sorry, Los Angeles and eventually finding my way to Atlanta. And when I was there, I think it was within that first year, I had gone to these creative mornings. They're like these free events on the last Friday of every month. And I think they still do them in Atlanta. They were they have chapters all over the country. It started in New York. But the idea is you just get creative people together, kind of a networking event with free breakfast or like little mm -hmm. snacks, and then someone talks on a creative topic. And so I went to some of those in LA. And then when I came to Atlanta, I went to one here and atlanta actually had an awesome chapter at one time pre-covid but at the end of that there was like you know the sponsors of the event and one of them was friendly human which was a production company in town and i think i was just like i need to find some kind of work in the filmmaking space and check these guys out and the first thing i saw in there was the original rhino man trailer which you know the film has changed a lot over the years but at, the, at its core it was always about telling these rangers stories. 
And in that little short trailer, Matt Lindenberg actually pops up for a minute, uh, kind of talking about the importance of these rangers. And so I just started basically stalking this production company for a year. <laughs> I, I set up a meeting with them, even though they didn't have a job posting and they were kind enough to, to meet with me and have a chat. And then I just kept showing up to all these like little events that they would put on and they were, they were doing the video at these creative mornings. So I'd stop by and say hello. And <laughs> finally, after a year, uh, they came to me and were like, Hey, actually, you know, we need some help producing. Do you want a job? you know, at, at friendly human, I was like, yeah, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> so I've been stalking you guys for a year. <laughs> so that's how I got connected with the production company. And when I, when I joined, I was like, you know, what, what's going on with this Rhino man movie. It's really what attracted me to you guys. And cause they did a lot of corporate short form projects, but on the side, they would do a lot of projects to help other nonprofits and charities, you know, mm -hmm. kind of just doing good. And this was their biggest project in that realm. And so I, I saw the film and what struck me was there are all these beautiful vignettes about rangers and rhinos and the crisis over there, which I had really known nothing about. So it was kind of learning as I was going, but after viewing it, I was, you know, realized that they kind of were at this sticking point where they, they really needed to focus on the business more. And Matt, who had started all this, he, he's originally from South Africa finished his master's in the US and Michigan. And he was working at Friendly Human as a producer to keep his work visa, but also keep this project going. Oh. And so I, he was there and I, I started talking with him like, so what, you know, what do you want to do with this? What's your goal ultimately? And after chatting for a while, we finally decided like, hey, let's, let's see if we can take this project a little further and see where we can go with it. Because in my mind, what it really needed was picking out the main characters that we wanted to follow and trying to create a story arc so we can kind of see them through time and uh, you know doing their work and, and fighting for this cause and so that's essentially what we did we you know got together had a bunch of index cards like planned out like okay if we could do the movie over or add to it here's what we would do here's the main people and out of that you know Ruben Takak and Anton Zimba those were probably the two biggest characters that stood out based on what they already had and Matt's connection to them back in South Africa and so through his nonprofit, we raised a, some extra money and convinced the company to basically let us go to South Africa for two weeks and just myself and him shoot what we needed to fill in these gaps in the story. So that's, that's really how I got to Rhino Man and how I connected with Matt. And I think on that trip when we were driving around, because it's everywhere in South Africa is like, you know, at least an hour drive, if not three or four to get somewhere. Yeah. And we just had all this time to realize that we both had a similar way of joking with each other and comedy and stuff like that. So we really bonded over that whole trip and became really good friends from there on. How auspicious to lead you to this point and how you yeah. met them and your fortitude to just keep going and asking them for a meeting and look where it's, it's taken you now. It's amazing story. So yeah. how long has the film been in the making? So the film has been in the making for, I think, over eight years now. I believe they started in 2015. Oh, wow. And so, so the way it all started was Matt, who, you know, he eventually, he was, he was living in the States for a while and found his way back in South Africa and decided to study at the Southern African Wildlife College. And that kind of took him on this path of really connecting with the rangers and helping some of the ranger training program there. And that's how we got really involved with all the main characters of this film originally. And so through that process, I think he was studying his masters and he found out that Martin Tembu, who was kind of the co-founder uh, or partner with the African Field Ranger Training Services, which was the training at the Wildlife College, he had passed away in a tragic car accident. Hmm. And, and for Matt, this guy was a huge mentor in his life. It was just a, a really strong figure. And, you know, I never got to meet him, but through the filmmaking and all these stories, uh, it is just, you know, one of these people that you kind of once in a lifetime run into and just wow. you know, commands respect, but not because he's demanding it, just because the way he acts and treats you and uh, just seemed like such an amazing human being. So when he was, when he died in this car accident, Matt was really inspired to do something to kind of continue his work, uh, partially with supporting the Rangers, but also with, you know, for Martin, I guess, 
a big part of his mission was helping bring in some of these local youth who may have been struggling in one way or another. There's just a lot of lack of opportunity there as well and helping guide them into a path where, you know, they can kind of have a path to make money, but also, you know, take responsibility for themselves, find good work and connect them to the conservation side as well. So Matt wanted to do something in that vein. And that's how Global Conservation Corps was birthed and this idea of telling the rangers stories. Because at that time, very few people knew what a wildlife ranger was doing or what a field ranger in South Africa was doing. You know, they're always kind of wow. in the shadows, uh, you know, patrolling and, and looking for poachers or keeping an eye on the wildlife, but they're not really in the public eye when people are out on game drives and things like that. And at that time, I don't think there were really any films around rangers uh, until Virunga came out. So that was, that was kind of his calling at that time. And when he was doing his master's in Namibia on cheetah conservation, one of his friends there, Eli, happened to have a brother in Atlanta, Georgia, Justin, who was working at Friendly Human at that time. And that's how they connected and said, hey, well, why don't we come and help you shoot some video and maybe we can do a Kickstarter and and slowly it just snowballed into a short film and then a feature film and then what we brought it to today. So amazing. Kind of happened. <laughs> it's like all yeah. these little parts that had to come together to make this happen. It's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm not mistaken, Martin is considered the original Rhino Man, correct? Yeah, yeah. And I believe there's a line or two in the film where that's stated. And and for Matt, especially, you know, he was, like I said, a, a huge mentor. But he also trained over 15,000 rangers across Africa and beyond. I mean, he was very integral into this process of a lot of the modern day ranger training and uh, best friends with Ruben Dukak, who features heavily in the film and Marianne, his wife. They were super close as friends and as family and just you know made a huge impact on the conservation space in the i i think this is kind of a side tangent but during that two-week trip that i went to uh went to south africa for the first time in 2018 what i came back with was yes it's a beautiful country and the wildlife and the nature was amazing that was my first time ever in africa to experience um you know have those types of experiences where you're seeing giraffes and lions and all these things but what really stuck with me when I came home was the people that I met, you know, Ruben and Anton and just so many amazing humans on the ground. And it just felt like, I don't know if it's just this conservation space and the way people live their lives so much more connected, but uh, just, yeah, that they just really stuck with me and touched my heart and um, just very strong people, but people that felt like they had purpose in their lives and were working toward a purpose. And I feel like a lot of us lack that in our day to day. And especially if you're like working in an office environment or, you know, what have you in the States, it's sometimes you feel like you're lacking that connection and uh, it's just, yeah, different heightened reality. I feel like people were living maybe a more primal reality that people were living there in South Africa in that area. So just really stuck with me. Yeah. And it, it's, um, it's truly where when you're living a life full of passion and purpose, it's like the ultimate way to live. Mm. And like you said, not being able to feel that so much here, but when you see that somewhere else, it's very inspiring Yeah, for your absolutely. own life. Yeah. So what does this film mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's evolved over the years. I think at first it was an interesting project. And for me as a filmmaker, you know, I was trying to find that story to be able to tell and connect with. And this was already an amazing story and kind of an adventure, you know, to go on yeah. to, to try and tell it. But over time, you know, as I connected more and more with the people in the film and spent more and more time in South Africa, I think it's become more than just a story I'm trying to tell. I mean, for me, these people are friends, are brothers, sisters, you know, so connected to their lives that, uh, you know, I think it's just important for me to to keep their legacy alive and also just to to bring more awareness to what they're doing because it's really tough work and most of these folks get paid very little to do it, but they're so passionate and it's such a worthy cause that, yeah, it just inspires me to keep pushing no matter what the obstacles to get this out. Yeah. It's you're able to carry their stories and share it with the world, which I 
feel too is truly important to for people to know what they're doing risking yeah. their lives absolutely yeah can you uh just give us a background of where the the filming takes place the reserve like can you paint us a picture of what it looks like yeah for sure most of the film it's it's all in south africa except for maybe like one or two shots and uh it's in the, I guess you'd call it the Hood Sprite area or the Greater Kruger National Park area. So uh, the main reserve we're at is the Timbavati Private Nature Reserve, which is just west of Kruger National Park, kind of in the center of it. Excuse me. And Kruger is about 2 million hectares, so 4 million acres. It's really wow. huge piece of land. And then the Greater Kruger area, I can't remember how much more it adds, but I know the Timbavati is uh, over 100,000 acres so it's it's a pretty good chunk of land itself just that reserve and the timavati that's where we follow anton mzimba and he's the lead ranger that's kind of guiding us through the story in terms of what the rangers have, actually have to deal with on the ground and then that's kind of cross cut with ruben and marianne taking these young candidates through a ranger training course at the southern african wildlife college which is kind of in Kruger National Park in a piece of land right there. So okay. these two these two places are probably within 40 minutes driving of each other. And that whole area is just very connected and everyone knows everybody and works together. Well, that's beautiful. You mentioned Anton um, and he's a he's one of the main characters. Can you share with us some of the background about him and what made him so special? Yeah. Yeah. So Anton was the second main person I met in 2018 when we were filming and we went out with him a couple times on the reserve and followed him and his team tracking rhinos. And, you know, I feel like <laughs> I would always talk to Anton and be like, Hey, um, I'm gonna have to make you do some more work. Sorry. <laughs> would you guys be able to do this or this? And he was always ready to go. And he's like, whatever you guys need. He's like, you know, just thank you for telling the story. And I was like, no, thank you for doing all this work right. and letting us torture you. But <laughs> I mean, as, as a human, he was just one of the kindest people I've ever met, super kind, gentle, you know, kind of soft-spoken, but also at the same time, you could feel that he really believed in what he was doing. I mean, he would tell you it's a calling from God for him. Like this mm -hmm. was something he was born to do. And so even though he was very kind-hearted and a gentle person, he was ready to stand up and fight for it and do whatever he had to, to make sure that you know, the wildlife were protected on the reserve. His men were taken care of, um, doing the right things. And also uh, a big part of what inspired Global Conservation Corps' growth over the years was his passion for youth and what you know kids were experiencing on the outside of the fences at these reserves. And I remember, you know, Matt's told me this story many times where Anton one one day was crying and just saying, you know, we're we're kind of this final line of defense and we're just holding the line here, but really things need to change on the outside of the fence if we want to ever make progress. Mm. And I think he told Matt that, you know, his kids had never even been on the reserve at that time. This was a while back and that most, most kids outside of the fences never see wildlife, even though they're growing up maybe one or two miles away from it and they just don't have the access. So that really inspired Matt to kind of shift from more focused on rangers to you know, the youth on the outside. And that's really where Global Conservation Corps is today. And we, we can go into that more, but yeah. yeah. I mean, Anton was just amazing person, always just so generous, kind, and, and just believed in this mission and, and wanted to do everything he could and dedicated every part of his life to making it happen. What a hero. Yeah, for sure. Now I have to ask, and and I did read this as well, that a lot of children don't get to see or experience the wildlife and um, even Anton's children didn't really get to. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I'm maybe not the best to go into tons of details, but I'll, I'll try my best uh, to do what I can. You know, South Africa went through a lot of tough times, especially through the colonial era and then also with apartheid, which um, I can't remember the exact dates, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it covered through like the 50s all the way up into the 90s uh, when Mandela took over and, and brought an end to that. But during that time, a lot of people that were living in South Africa were pushed out of these areas. So a lot of these conserv what became conservation areas 
they were pushed out and, you know, cordoned off into communities here and there. And a lot of times they were you know, pretty rough and poor communities. Mm. And so there was this kind of historical separation that was created, which creates a lot of tensions today, even into today. And because of that, a lot of these local areas um, just financially don't have a lot of money and don't have a lot of opportunity for work even. And that's a mix of this historical separation through apartheid, but then also sadly through a lot of corruption with the modern government um, where a lot of these local governments will, you know, take the money themselves and then leave the people living there with little. So it's a, co it's a combination of a lot of things. And, and so what's happened is, you know, for a long time, there's kind of this fortress mentality of put up the fences, try to keep the wildlife safe. A lot of these international tourists come, which have a lot of money, especially compared to people living next to these areas. And, you know, people grow up in these communities, just kind of seeing that going on, but not able to actually afford to go into these parks. Mm. And so that's, that's what's created a lot of this. And over the years, I think, especially in the last 10 years, the mindset has been changing overall in conservation of that area. And people realize that, you know, unless, unless we change that and people have access and are benefiting from these conservation spaces and are taking ownership and responsibility for a lot of these conservation areas, then, you know, it's just kind of a losing battle and eventually it's all just going to come crumbling down. So there's a lot of efforts to make that happen. And, you know, with GCC, we have the future Rangers program, which if you get Matt on here, he'll be able to talk with a lot more clarity around it. But essentially it started out as bringing conservation education and experiences to youth living next to these protected areas. Mm -hmm. And so that's a mix of, you know, having facilitators come in and teach the kids, but then also putting together game drives and experiences where they actually get to go into these national parks and into the private reserves and see the wildlife for the first time and connect with them. Wow. Because if you don't, you know, if you don't see something and care about it, then why are you going to protect it? And so yeah. that was a big part of it. But then ultimately kind of long-term also being able to track the progress of these students and see the students that really excel in the conservation side of things and help create opportunities, whether that's scholarships or jobs and careers in conservation so that people can actually make a living and do this work that they get connected to in a way that supports them and their families as well. Because even if you care about it, if you can't feed your family, it's, it's going to be kind of at the bottom of the list of things to worry right. about. Right. Well, how fortunate that uh, GCC has created that future Rangers program to um, sort of in, inspire the children and make them aware of the, the nature that surrounds them and how special it is in that area. And it's, it's amazing that, um, like somebody like Anton, who knew how special these, the wildlife was, but also how important it was to inspire the children to want to continue this legacy mm. of protecting the wildlife. So how does, how does one become a ranger if they're not truly exposed to the wildlife in the area? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like I said, it's, it's changing now. I mean, I guess you know, this is always, you know, talking to a lot of rangers and wardens and people working there, this is kind of one of the, one of the reasons for the selection programs and why they're rigorous, you know, partially because these jobs are physically tough jobs. I mean, you're yeah. walking around patrolling a lot. Uh, you need to be the type of person that can handle very stressful situations, whether that's, you know, an, an animal charging you or one of your teammates or, a poacher contact where you actually have to potentially shoot back or, you know, act in the spur of the moment to save a teammate or something like that. So yeah. these, these things need to be somewhat physically and mentally tough to, to weed out the right people. But another reason a lot of folks say is that they want to try and make sure that it's the right people, you know, people that have the passion for this. So, you know, if, if it's hard enough and you don't have the passion and you're probably going to be like, oh, well, I can find a different job. This isn't, maybe this isn't the opportunity for mm -hmm. me. And part of the reason for that is there's also a lot of corruption at every level uh, in South Africa, whether that's governments or rangers or wardens, you know, law enforcement, everyone 
has fallen prey to it, but there's, mm -hmm. you know, a, a huge economic incentive to give information away to poach and things like that because of the, the disparities. And so anything they can do to try and find the right people and then encourage the right people and grow the right people, um, helps <laughs> that cause. Right. So it is to be completely dedicated. Yeah. It's, and, and so I guess g going back to your question, you know, there's so few job opportunities that when they post one of these jobs for Rangers, I mean, a lot of people come, even people that probably just don't really have a chance or aren't really mm -hmm. made for it, or maybe you're coming for the wrong reasons just because people are desperate for money. So there's not like a lack of people coming. It's just maybe hard to find the right people. And I think that's a big part of the education and the connection to the wildlife is you create, you cultivate kids growing up that really care about this wildlife. And then they come into it with a different mentality than, you know, it's just a paycheck because I mean, it's, there's a lot of places in Africa, Asia, South America, where these jobs, I mean, it's crazy how little people make uh, for what they have to do, especially when they're risking their lives, risking their lives. Yeah. But, but even in the States and other places, you know, conservation jobs just are usually not the highest paying jobs. So you really have to care about it and it's got to be a passion and just being out in nature and, and the work you're doing has to be a part of that paycheck, you know, for your spirit, <laughs> because right. unfortunately it's just, it's hard to, to make a lot of money in that space. Right. I mean, for them, it's um, more of a passion than, you know, the paycheck. Unfortunately, yeah. they're not getting paid equal to the work that they're doing because what is their life like? How how long are they out in the reserve for at a time? Yeah, I think it can depend, uh, depending on what reserve you're at or what park you're working at. But it seems like the average, at least in South Africa, is about a 28-day deployment. So wow. you're on the reserve for 28 days, you know, doing you know different patrols and things like that. But you're away from home for that long, typically. And then you get about a week to go back, connect with your family, and then you're out again for 28 days. And I know the Timbavati, they also offer like a, I think once a year you get a month off. So you get like a nice downtime to, to recoup, but it is a lot of time away. And, you know, even Anton said, you know, it's when he had some of his younger kids, he's like, he's like I, I'm going to leave for 28 days. And when I come back, my kid that's, you know, a few months old, probably won't remember who I am. And it's going to be crying and want his mom back. And it's just, right. you could tell it, it takes a toll and it's a lot of, communication and he, he always believed in that you know communicating with his family what's going on and why he's doing this and um you know i think he tried to make sure his men were doing the same because it's it's tough especially if you're in a new relationship uh you know newly yeah. married and suddenly your partner realizes like oh you're gonna be away for like a month at a time <laughs> you know unless you're really talking about that with your partner it's it's pretty big shock yeah it right it's it's a I didn't even think about that, that the, the family has to be on board mm -hmm. for this kind of work too. It's not, yeah. it's not an, it's not an easy, like, oh yeah, sure. No problem. I'll see you in a week. It's I'll see you in 28 days or so. And I hope that you stay safe while you're out there. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, a lot of the, the better training out there, make sure that these rangers are aware of that and how to communicate that and bring their family on board because yeah. otherwise they're just, it's going to be hard for them to, to be a good ranger, to be able to focus on their work. And, and anytime there's, you know, either just a, a lack of connection to that work or getting disgruntled or into financial trouble. I mean, even the financial training, a lot of the, the courses at the wildlife college try to give them at least a, cursory understanding of how to take care of your finances, because those all just leave opportunities for some of these crime syndicates to prey on these rangers to try and get them to give information or to come over to their side. And it's, it's sad how often that happens. And, you know, for the good rangers out there, it's, it's tough. Cause you know, if you know, one of your buddies is giving away information, you just can't prove it yet. You, you feel like you know, there's like a, a hole in the bucket, you know, <laughs> it's, right. and you can only tell them so much and it just makes, life more stressful and tough for everyone. Wow. This is amazing. Um, how was it, what was the experience like for you to get to know these, these rangers and understand yeah. their line of work? Uh, I mean, it's, 
It was an amazing process. I mean, like I said, Anton and, and most of these rangers that I met over the years are just so passionate about the work and grateful for it and want to make a difference. And um, so I think that's just infectious as well. And you learn so much from them as well, you know, going out in the back of the truck or Bucky, as they call it there in South Africa, <laughs> you're riding around the reserve and they're just pointing out things to you. And, you know, they could see a leopard from, it seems like a half a mile away. And <laughs> you're like, how wow. do you see these things? Just kind of crazy. So I think that was amazing, but just also, you know, getting to go to some of their homes and, and they're seeing their families and, everyone's always so welcoming and i feel like anytime you go visit someone there they're like they want to cook you up a huge meal and <laughs> you know we could talk about this whole other film that i kind of started working on when i was there in 2020 during covid stuck but we we visit a lot of families in the communities and you know we get there and be like all right it's i know it's lunchtime but we're ready to shoot and <laughs> we don't need to eat and they're like no you got to sit down we made all this food <laughs> so <laughs> Um, yeah, that's was, part of the culture though, right? I mean, it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. What an incredible experience for you to just see all of that firsthand too. Yeah, it was, it was really incredible. I mean, it's, it feels like a second home there. I've spent probably about a year in total over the last five years in that hood Sprite area. So wow. in some ways I feel like I know more people there than in Atlanta, just cause it's such like a more tight knit community. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I think that that's truly beautiful that you can pick that up because I think like even in the area that I live, a community is um, the, there's fringes. It's not super tight. Mm -hmm. And what you're explaining is completely different. You know, it's like the community is basically this enlarged family coming yeah, together. Yeah. Wow. And everyone's, everyone's got each other's back because, you know, with between the wildlife and the poachers and, and some of the crime and stuff, you know, it can be dangerous. So I think everyone is just more aware of the value of life and, yeah. you know, want to protect each other and fight for each other. And so it just felt like there was such a, like brotherly sisterly love between so many people in that area, which is, yeah, you just don't see that too often in too many no. places. Oh, that's so. truly special. So I wanted to ask just to give um, people a background. Why is it so important that we have these Rangers protecting the rhino and how many Rangers have lost their lives protecting the wildlife in South Africa? Did you happen to know? Yeah. Yeah, so I can I can try to give you some overview of it. I mean, in in terms of the rhino specifically, there's less than twenty seven thousand rhinos in the world. And there's five species, two of which are in South Africa, and most of the rhinos are in South Africa. I can't remember the exact split, but um, maybe somewhere around twenty, a little over twenty thousand rhinos in South slash Southern Africa, and those are the white rhino and the black rhino. Um, the white rhino are the have the most the highest population, black rhinos, I think black are somewhere between three and 5,000. I'm forgetting the numbers right now. So I'm just kind of giving you a range. And then the, yeah. uh, the white rhinos, I think are around 16, 17,000. Um, and then there's also like one horn rhinos in kind of the Nepal area. And then there's Javan and Sumatran rhinos in Southeast Asia. But uh, the, the Javan and Sumatran, I think there's less than a hundred of each of those. So yeah. they're right on the verge of extinction and the one horn um i think there's a couple thousand few thousand of them so so yeah there's not very many rhinos left and the main driver of their demise is you know originally it was more chinese medicine things along those lines but really i think what's driving it now from what people are saying is um you know it's used as like a status symbol either carved into different ornaments or like an investment there's some people that use it as like a hangover cure or something like that. Some people thought it was a cancer cure, especially in Vietnam area area. But I think as like the middle class has grown in that part of the world, suddenly they've had the money to be able to, to buy more of this horn. And it's really driven up the demand starting in 2008. And I think at the height of the rhino poaching crisis, there's around 1200, 1400 rhinos poached in a year. I think that was around 2014, 2015. Incredibly high. 
Yeah, and now we're down to like f around 500, I think, but which is still, still fairly high for what's left. Yeah, so that's that's really driving this. And then, as I mentioned earlier, in places like South Africa and other parts of Africa, a lot of people that live next to these protected areas just don't have many economic opportunities. And so these crime syndicates come in and prey on them and they'll do things like sit at a bar and, you know, try to strike up a conversation and find out, oh, you owe some money on that furniture you bought. Uh, like, oh, yeah, I can help you out with that loan and maybe I'll buy you a drink. And then it's like they'll slowly reel you in to where all of a sudden you owe them something. And next thing you know, you're out in the bush, you know, holding uh, an axe or a panga or something like that to chop off the horn. And so there's there's a lot of ways that these syndicates get people involved. And then once you're roped in, it's you're, you're kind of in for good, because otherwise they'll threaten your families if you don't want to keep doing the work that they want you to do. So, oh, you know, some people are just purely greedy and they, they opt to go in and know that there's opportunity there. And then other people kind of get into a bad spot and then find themselves in this. And you know, they're just trying to find a way to support their family. So that's really what's driving it. And and then you have. You know, on the inside of the fence, you have the rangers, which you know, not only are they protecting the rhinos, which is a huge part of it in South Africa right now, and it's a dangerous part of it, uh, but they're also monitoring the wildlife. So, if, you know, if there's an injured animal, especially if they're an animal that's you know, on one of the endangered lists, they, they look out for those things so that they can make sure they can get, it, get a vet in there, take care of it. They're looking for snares because there's a lot of, a lot of snare snares, hunting right? as well. Yeah. yeah. And most of that is more for uh, bush meat for locals to to find meat to either eat or sell. And it's the sad thing is you put a snare down, you could catch anything. I mean, elephants, I mean, you've seen elephants with trunks caught in there, lions, and, you know, it's not just, you know, maybe they're trying to get an impala or something, but it'll catch everything and anything. And if right. someone doesn't find it right away, it's going to just lose its limb or die. And th that's that. So, so yeah, it's, a, they have a, quite a few roles protecting the area. I mean, you know, enforcing any kind of laws on the reserves, but also community engagement. And, you know, I think Anton was big on connecting with the youth and the communities as well, um, showing what these rangers are doing and why it's important. And, and someone like Anton, I mean, a lot of these rangers just loved the, loved nature and Anton knew every bird, every tree, all the wildlife. I mean, he could tell you, so much information about all these things. It was, it was pretty impressive. Um, so wow. rangers are doing a ton of work and I don't know the numbers in South Africa specifically, but on average about 140 rangers die every year. And about 40% of those are from homicide. And those numbers are probably low because there's a lot of parts of the world where we just don't have good data. Um, you know, I don't think we have much data from like Russia and China. There's lots of parts of, um, South America, we just don't have good data on. So I'm sure the numbers are a lot higher in terms of ranger deaths each year. And some of these areas are just way more dangerous than others too. Like the DRC, it's sad every year. You just see, you know, 10, 15, 20 rangers killed in yeah. some kind of ambush with a rebel force or something like that. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a dangerous job. <clears throat> it's, it varies in a lot of different ways from different parts of the world. There's Marine rangers as well. And, uh, and we, <laughs> don't really have enough of them, sadly. You know, these areas are huge areas. Like I was saying, Kruger is about 4 million acres. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but I feel like it's somewhere around 700 rangers or something like that. And that's thinking people that are coming on and off duty. And that's just an insane amount of land to cover. Right. And, and we want to, you know, there's a global initiative to protect 30% of the planet by 2030. And right now we have about 250,000 or sorry. Yeah. 250,000 Rangers, I think around the world, but we need to get it up to about 1.5 million to be able to effectively protect that amount of land. So it's just, we're, we're lacking, we're way behind. And a yeah. big part of it is just the, a lot of areas just don't really know the value and worth of these Rangers and aren't supporting them in the right ways. And yeah, bringing awareness to that and trying to encourage that is, a huge part of what we're trying to do with the film as well. Yeah, that's why this film is so important to get that message out there to the global community of what this means for not just for the wildlife, but the entire world, the entire mm. planet, nature itself that sustains us. Um, wow, I had no idea 
that the homicide rate was so high. That's shocking. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, it's a mix of on the job and then off the job. Like we, we can talk about what happened to Anton as well. It's out there in the news in a big way, but a lot of these Rangers are threatened at home as well. Right. And they just can't, can't be safe when you go off the job, similar to, you know, I'm sure a lot of police and other types of law enforcement fa face this type of thing where the criminals wait for those vulnerable moments. And then that's when they attack. And unfortunately that happens with Rangers as well. Yeah. Do you mind sharing about Anton? Yeah. So the film, you know, it's, it's been an eight and a half year project, but last year in the spring, we were pretty close to finishing the film. I was, you know, wrapping up some of the sound mixes. We were getting a color grade, all these fine tuning things that we were finishing up. And as that was going on, Anton started sending me messages and saying, Hey, I uh, just want to let you know, but uh, we have some guys that have been hired to take me out, basically some hitmen that have been hired. And, you know, you know I don't think it's going to be a big deal. We'll probably take care of it quickly. You know, at first he just kind of brushed it off. Like this happens. I get threats now and again, we'll, we'll figure it out. But over the course of a few months, you know, it started to get pretty serious to where he was, moving his family back and forth from his home to the reserve. You know, he was, they were really trying to figure out how to, to get these guys working with the police and uh, they just weren't really having a, making much progress, I guess. And then finally, all of a sudden, you know, it sounded like they had kind of scared the guys off. The police had chased them off. They'd gotten rid of them and he was starting to feel more relaxed. And then about two months after that, uh, I remember, I think, he had a dinner with Matt actually in South Africa. I was in Atlanta at the time and he and Matt had a nice dinner and he was telling Matt like, you know, I'm finally starting to feel at ease again, relaxed, thinking about my future, thinking about retirement, wanting to be more involved with the youth and what GCC is doing. And, you know, it just seemed like he was in a good place. And then about a week later, I woke up early in the morning and my roommate at the time, Josh, who was also really involved with GCC. He was the president of the board for a while. He, um, he came into the room. I think I was working out or something really early in the morning. And he just looked like, I thought someone died in his family. I mean, just the, the look on his face. And then he, he told me, he's like, did you, did you hear what happened? I was like, no, what, what's going on? He's, he's like, they got Anton. And I just, I don't, I don't even think it processed in my mind, like what he was talking about. It was like, what do you, what do you mean they got Anton? He's like, the, the guys that were trying to kill him, they got him. And yeah, it was, it was, uh, I think at first I was just numb and just couldn't, couldn't accept it. And, and so I just said, okay, I'm going to go for a run or something. I just need to go outside. And I started running and then I saw a call coming from Matt who was in South Africa. And so I answered it and he was just, yeah, in tears on the phone. And I think that's when it just hit me and I just couldn't, couldn't believe that he was gone. Um, and so essentially what happened was he was at home. I think he was working on his truck and a car came up to the house and these two guys came out and said that uh, they'd broken down and they needed some wa water for the car. And uh, they asked one of the sons, you know, where's, where's your dad? He pointed him over to them or to his father and they walked up to Anton and he was, you know, Hey, what do you guys need ready to help them? And then they just pulled out two pistols right there and, and shot him in the chest. And, and then they shot at the family, shot the, one of the wives in the stomach and she was injured, luckily recovered. And then they ran off in the car and still haven't been tracked down or caught really? to this day. Yeah. How so devastating. Yeah, it was, it was extremely devastating, you know, for us as friends. I mean, I'd really gotten close with Anton over the years in 2020, I'd spent probably nine months in South Africa working with his team and him quite a bit. And then just being in touch with him almost every other week for a couple of years after that. And yeah, it was, it was kind of just like, what do we do now? Um, yeah. I mean, and so I think it just took us, took us a little bit. And then we, we decided to work as hard as we could to put together a fund for his kids. So we raised uh, a fair amount of money for his kids tertiary school after they graduate. So we're, we put together the Anton Zimba education trust with a few other partners, the Timbavadi, the wildlife college elephants alive 
and GCC. And then, um, and then it kind of just sent us down, down this crazy path, which I could tell you about as well, but it was, yeah, it's just, it's heartbreaking because, you know, it's just, I think I kept going back and forth between the sadness and the anger because I just couldn't imagine someone killing him for doing something that was coming from such a place of love. Right. It just, it just really, yeah, it just felt really dark and made me just really angry for a while. Um, to, I just didn't know how to deal with that, but yeah, we yeah. lost a, a shining soul. Yeah, that was doing so much good for this world. My deepest sympathies because it's one of the incredible heroes of the story and mm. explaining through the film like why these rangers are so important. And here you go, we've, we've lost one of the one of the heroes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just made it even more important to get this thing out. I mean, I think at first as a filmmaker, I was just didn't know what to do. Cause I'm like, you know, what's the right thing to do a, like, do we include this in the film? Do we not, right. do we just put a sentence at the end or, you know, how do we manage that? And then also as like a, a person that's been just putting everything they had into this project for so long and like finally feeling like they're at the end and realizing like, Oh, we might have to break this thing open again and, and rework it to include this. And at the same time, mourning a friend, it was just like, it was kind of a hard, hard time to figure out what to do with all of that. Um, exactly. That's yeah. so much to think about at one time. Yeah. Wow. I am so sorry. Yeah, it's thank devastating. You. It, when I read that, I was just, I was heartbroken. I mean, and that, you know, here's this man who is already putting his life on the line and not being around his family for days on end. And, um, wanting a future for the wildlife and wanting the children to carry on this legacy and, you know, what a role model. Yeah. Um, my goodness. Um, yeah. So, I mean, just to continue a little bit on that, <clears throat> you know, I think after having a little bit of time to, to process it and we kind of went on this journey of being connected with Prince William and United for Wildlife because he had a connection to Anton, which took us to London. And uh, so shortly after he died, maybe like a, a month and a half or so, I was flying to Africa for the African Ranger Congress and then up to London to speak about Anton and the Rangers with Matt and then back to reconnect with the family and his team after all this had happened. And I think after having that time and processing it with all of them and getting their blessing as well, you know, I felt like Anton had already given about seven years to this project and wanted to see this story get out because he believed that, you know, there needed to be more awareness and support for what Rangers are doing, not just him, but Rangers everywhere. And so I think knowing that in the back of my mind, it just made sense to do whatever we could with this story to get it out there in as big of a way as we could and have as much impact as we could to kind of hold true to that promise. And so that I think gave me the confidence and courage to kind of move forward and, and actually include what happened to Anton and as respectful a way as I could. And, and that whole, the whole way through, we were, you know, talking with the family, especially and his team to be like, Hey, this is what we think we should do is, are you on, is it feel right to you guys as well? Cause the last thing we wanted to do is put something into the world that his family would look at and be like, Hey, this, this doesn't feel right. So that was, a huge part of it but yeah once we got their blessing and and kind of thought through it then that's yeah that's what i ended up doing i spent the last part of 2022 working that into the film and and kind of updating the film with his his death and then also his memorial which was a really beautiful day that i unfortunately missed but got to live through some of the videos that were captured in and building this part of the film wow i think that's in incredible to include that in, in the film and share that part of the story. Mm. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm looking forward to seeing this film. I mean, there's just so much heart on the line <laughs> for this. So, um, but I wanted to 
mention on a lighter note that um, Rhino Man was selected as a finalist for mm-hmm. the Jackson Wild Media Awards in both conservation and people in nature long form categories. Like this is considered what the highest bar of achievement in um, for natural history. And that is amazing. (laughs) So um, how does that feel for you to know that this film has been recognized? Yeah. I mean, it feels, it feels amazing. I mean, we're just kind of starting our journey down trying to get this thing out into the world now that it's completed. It's finally 100% complete, the film, which yeah. has taken a long time to get there. And we did have like a nice, beautiful private screening with Prince William and United for Wildlife back in June, which was an amazing experience. And his whole team was just awesome to work with over this last uh, last year, really. We've done some different events with them and so much support there. But now it's like, you know, how do we get it out? We want to yeah, that was a great experience, but we want as many people as possible to see this thing. And so right. going to the festival circuit was kind of the next step. And just Jackson Wild being around the corner, that was one of the the ones that we were really gunning for. And yeah, when we found out we got in, we we're just pretty ecstatic because in terms of conservation and natural history films, it really is the top um, top festival or summit that to get into. So we're really excited to see what we can do in terms of awards. I mean, just getting in is huge and, and really enough, but if we can win some of those awards, it could help us as we continue forward and try to get distribution for the film in a way that you know supports the cause and gets us out to as many people as possible. Cause ultimately to have that impact, we want as many people as we can get to see it. And then also, to connect with the social impact campaign that we're building to support the rangers through training and taking care of fallen rangers and supporting the GCC's future rangers program. So there's a lot involved in it that we want to get out there. And I think this will be a a really amazing way to start that journey. Oh, for sure. For sure. Now, um, will there be a way for people to see a screening of the film? Yeah. So, at Jackson, we're actually doing, um, it's like a pre-release screening we're going to do. We, we managed to get folks together to help us sponsor that because okay. Jackson is, is more focused on the conservation side as a summit. And so the media is a big part of it and they have the award ceremony, but it isn't like a traditional film festival where every movie's screened every day. So oh, okay. we, we had pulled together the people that are helping us have a screening the opening night on the 25th after the sunset reception there. So if you're there, please come, or if you can get a, a ticket to the summit, come to that. When is um, it? That is September 25th is the, the night of the screening. And it's that okay. whole week, the 25th through the 28th, I believe um, in Jackson, Wyoming in the Grand Tetons national park, which I've always wanted to go to. So this will be a really amazing way to do it. Right. Um, and what's what's special about it too is since we're doing this screening, we've also managed to raise the funds to bring a couple of rangers uh, from South Africa. Uh, Orlots, who is actually Anton's second command at Timbavadi and had to kind of step into his boots when he was murdered. Uh, he's another amazing ranger and he came with us to London and he's just amazing human being and just so dedicated to the work uh, more than anyone else I've ever met wow. uh, next to Anton. And, and then Leda... Um, Kambela, who she is one of the Black Mambas, which is an all-female ranger team in South Africa. They're pretty famous. And she's also a cousin of Anton's. And Anton was really her mentor as she was going and becoming a ranger, especially as a woman becoming a ranger. There's there's a lot of pressure against it as she was going into that field. And Anton always stood behind her and encouraged her to keep going. And yeah, just to be special to have a family connection there as well. And yeah. then Ruben, Ruben and Marion, the two ranger trainers from the film uh, who kind of started this whole ranger training process in South Africa in a big way, they're coming with us as well. So yeah, we're going to have a, a beautiful screening and then a nice Q&A afterwards and uh, just really looking forward to that experience overall. Yeah, that's going to be a beautiful way to show the film and to have all of that support there too. Yeah. And I guess if you're not coming to the summit, there is a much cheaper version where you can get online access. And I think after that screening day, we're going to allow them to have our film up on that platform for a month or so. Oh, and okay. then so you could access it that way. And then also, you know, we're, we're submitting to a lot of other film festivals and it's usually about a year long circuit from when you start to when you finish. 
Um, so hopefully we'll get into more screenings in the U.S. We're applying in Europe, um, some in Africa as well. So you know we'll we'll make sure to to post any of those screenings. So make sure to follow us on social media at Rhino Man the Movie on Instagram. It's probably the best way or rhinomanthemovie.org, our website. Um, and we'll make sure anytime we get into anything like that, we'll post it. But I mean, ultimately we want to get it on something like Nat Geo, Netflix, Apple, one of those big platforms. Right. So we're working hard to, to make those deals happen and, and get it out there. But we also want to make sure we find the right partner because we want to protect that social impact campaign and make sure we're able to raise those funds and awareness and do a lot of the social good side of it as well. So it's, it's definitely right. a balance. Yeah, for sure. But I hope the best for it. Yeah. Thank you. Now, I also wanted to mention that there is a Rhino Man, Rhino Man podcast. Hmm. Where can people listen to it? Yeah. So it's, it's on all the podcast platforms as well. Spotify, Apple are probably the biggest. Uh, it's, I, it's hosted on SoundCloud. So if you don't have any of those, you can go there. But the easiest way to probably find it is just rhinomanthemovie.org. Um, if you put slash podcast in there, it'll take you right to that page. But it's all on there. And the main reason I started it was to just bring more awareness and continue the story beyond the film to what rangers are doing, also the rhino poaching crisis and community engagement and why that's important. So I managed to interview quite a few people in Africa and beyond around those topics and some of the the top folks in those areas, which has been really fun way just to to meet those people, build those relationships, and bring more awareness to the amazing work that they're doing in so many different ways that we weren't able to capture in the film. Oh, that's a wonderful idea. Yeah, that was a novel idea to to create that to continue the momentum of of sharing these stories and raising yeah. more awareness. That's awesome. Yeah. And I guess as a pro tip for any like filmmakers out there, it's been an amazing way just to build partners and connect people to the project in that way too, because, you know, sometimes it's, it's awkward just to reach out to someone and be like, Hey, can I <laughs> interest you in right. my film or right. what we're doing? But if you're like, Hey, I'd love to feature you on this podcast that we're doing to bring awareness on these topics, then it's a way easier ask and you get to have amazing deep conversations with them. And then you never know what those will lead into. So a lot right. of the partners and people that have supported the film came from those connections through that podcast. Wow. Incredible. What can people do to support GCC's Rangers cause? Yeah. So I've been mentioning this social impact campaign and we still need to flesh it out more on the website. You technically can go there and donate now, but really we want to have a big goal of trying to raise $5 million U.S., to support rangers and kind of create a pipeline for rangers um, from youth with GCC's Future Ranger program to you know inspiring them, educating, um, giving opportunities and pathways into these conservation careers, all the way through training rangers, uh, partnering with the Wildlife College, Southern African Wildlife College, and Lead Ranger, which is a project of the Thin Green Line. Um, they both are amazing training programs working throughout Africa, training these rangers. And then uh, Thin Green Line also has a Fallen Rangers Fund, which takes care of families of Fallen Rangers because a mm -hmm. lot of times these rangers don't have any kind of life insurance. And in a lot of areas, their jobs don't even really have much insurance. So it's not a lot of money, but in some of these areas, it goes a long way. So they provide these funds for Fallen Rangers families to help them during this time of loss, especially when they're probably losing their primary breadwinner and might have you yeah. know, quite a few kids. So That's an incredible program. Yeah. And right now, I think if you go to, if you go to rhinomanthemovie.org, um, there's, a, I think, a link at the top that says take action. I think you can also go slash next dash steps. Um, we'll take you there as well. And there will be a URL at the end of the film that goes there. So we have a little bit of information explaining it. It's very kind of clunky right now because we just threw it together quickly when we were in London. But I'm hoping to update it more before we get to Jackson. And we're just going to keep updating it and making it uh, easier to access because that's that's one of the big ways people will be able to help. And then we're also trying to do, you know, local screenings for communities near these protected areas so that oh, it can inspire wow. youth to be connected with what the Rangers are doing and the importance of this. Um, and also trying to find different ways we can influence policy too, because there's a lot of global policies around Rangers and Rhinos where this film could really connect people to that human side of the story. And 
hopefully motivate people to to take action and make the right choices um, from even a, a global, you know, country by country perspective as well. Right. Wow, you are doing incredible work to raise awareness about this issue. And thank you for making this film. Yeah, you're welcome. You and trying. <laughs> yeah, this is this is no small feat and the heart and passion you have put into this for what it's been over eight years. Yeah, I've been like over five years now, but it's been over eight years for the project overall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. I wish you all the luck with this. Um, I can't wait to see it. And um, much luck at the Jackson Wild Awards. Um, I'll be rooting for you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nicole. Yeah, this yeah. has been really amazing to meet you and, and get to share this story with you and your audience. Thank you, John. Bye.